Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the first letter to the Corinthians. And before we talk about anything else, let me go back to what we just did. We just prayed the Our Father. Alongside of the liturgy itself, the most important prayer that we have in the church. A prayer that we pray as a part of the liturgy, right? That prayer where we invoke God as Father. And in so doing, evoke this intimate relationship that God has entrusted us with in our baptism. Let the prayer, our Father, never get old. Let that 55-word catechism on what it means to pray never get old. But enter into it each and every time you pray it. I was thinking on the way over here this evening about the prayer, Our Father. I'm teaching on it in, in different circles, and I could not help but just make a point that, you know, when we start today's radio program, we need to really reemphasize the need to pray the Our Father. So with that, let us pray one more time this evening and pray it from the heart. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. If you are interested in reflecting more deeply into the Our Father, you can go into the Catechism Pillar 4, I also did a series of reflections on the Our Father. If you want to go into the archives on Thursday, Special Topic Thursday, you can find the Our Father in there. So anyhow, my point here is never let the Our Father be a prayer that becomes boring or mundane. It is the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. Amen? Amen. All right. So for this evening, we are going to get back into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, yesterday, we offered up a reflection on theology of the body, and it was really just an introduction. And it's going to be important for us this evening as well. We're going to get back into some elements of theology of the body. You know, we have a lot of ologies today. Psychology, sociology, biology. What are these ologies? Well, psychology is the study of the mind. Sociology is the study of all of those principles that we study to better understand society and how we relate to one another. Uh, biology is the study of what but living organisms. Theology is the study of God. We've defined it in our faith tradition as faith-seeking understanding, right? Fides corens intellectum. So theology of the body is the study of how our bodies glorify God. And it is that phrase that is going to be very important for us this evening. So, in essence, yesterday and into today, we are made to appreciate God's intention for sexuality. 
right? George Montague, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, reflects that you know, the gospel itself upholds the dignity of every human being created in the image and likeness of God. It further proclaims that every person is called to share intimately in the life of the Holy Trinity as a child of God, the Father, a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, and a temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God's own Trinitarian love. God's glory is man fully alive, as St. Irenaeus put it. Montague continues, and consequently the church teaches that society must promote the full development of human persons and preserve the institutions that make for their integral development. So primary among these, of course, is marriage, the union of one man and one woman, which is made sacred in the church through the sacrament, uniting the two in a permanent union open to the transmission of life. Montague there concludes in that context, the person reaches fulfillment in the total gift of self to the other. Did we not talk about that yesterday, huh? The total gift of self to the other, the donation of the flesh, physically, yes, in the conjugal act of love, but also spiritually, how we make a lot of little sacrifices throughout our day. All right, with that, let us read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Oh, by the way, I'm reading the RSV. I know I've mentioned that at least in the early going of our study, but someone was asking me that the other day. The RSV, the Revised Standard Version, and we go to the RSV because it probably has the best translations from the Hebrew and the Greek. Okay, so we're probably getting the closest thing to the original text when we read the RSV. Now, does that mean that we don't pick up other Bibles? Of course not. I have a lot of other Bibles at home that I look at to see the differences and the nuances to see if there might be something there that I may have missed in the RSV. While it be the best translation, it's always good to have other translations. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one, but he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body. All right, what can we say here? Well, first, if we are staying in tune with what we've already talked about, the previous section has already laid the groundwork, right, for this more detailed treatment of sexual immorality, this pornea in the Greek. 
And as the previous section ended with the Trinity, so will this one. My dear friends, if there is an ought in the Christian life, as I have spoken to it so much, it is only because there is first what, but an is, right? Something objective, something to move towards, an end, a goal, right? And this is, of course, in the Christian life, a new existence in the Trinitarian life of God. So in this, Paul is very much breaking new ground for Jew as well as Gentile. There is a new ought, if you will, for the Jew whose adherence to the law already restricted sexual activity to marriage. It was the Trinitarian foundation of sexual ethics that was new. For the Gentile, it was new moral ground as well, right? I mean, the pagan world had no censure for extramarital intercourse, but even a positive rationale for it, did it not? As noted by one ancient historian, mistresses we keep for pleasure, concubines for the sake of daily intercourse, wives to bear as legitimate children, and to be our faithful housekeepers. The prevailing attitude towards sex was what? But casual and often prostitution thrived. Thrived. We have to appreciate the historical context here. So when Paul first introduces the topic here, he uses, again, pornea in its broadest sense for all forms of unlawful sex. So in this section, Paul shows first that sexual immorality is not an indifferent matter and that it is an outrage to Christ himself and to the Holy Spirit, which he has already identified in verse 11. In the end, what Paul wants us to see here is that the matter of sexual satisfaction is subject to another principle. It involves the whole body and thus the whole person. Yesterday we were talking about the dynamism, the unity between the body and soul. Paul wants us to appreciate this. Remember how I've talked about it before within the context of the sacramentality of our bodies? How we can begin to appreciate the unity of the body and soul if we just take a step back and reflect into how our bodies reveal something of the interior life. So for example, if you were happy, what do you do? You smile. I can look at you and see if you are happy or joyful on the inside by what I see on the outside. Okay? A smile is essentially a sacrament, we could say, of joy. And if you are sad, what do you do? You cry. You shed tears. Those tears are a sacrament of something on the inside. What if you are shy huh, or embarrassed? You blush. Your red cheeks are a sacrament, an outward sign of an interior reality. Okay? So, to reflect upon the sacramentality of the body is to appreciate the unity between body and soul. Paul wants us to see this, he wants us to appreciate this, and he wants us to reflect upon this, does he not? And of course, do so within the context of our sexuality. So for Paul, again, the body is not for sexual satisfaction in the way that, what? The stomach is for food. We can apply reason here. Reason tells us that sexual activity is designed for union 
with a person. Not like eating for the consumption of an object. So, the whole body, which is somehow involved in sexual activity, has an even nobler end, a divine end. It is for the Lord. It is for God. We were created in the image and likeness of God. That includes everything. God created sex, and if he created sex, that means it has something to do with God and how our bodies might glorify God. Does it not? It is destined ultimately to be united and conform to the glorious body of Christ, now and of course in heaven, as Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 reminds us. And I love this verse, and the Lord is for the body. That is, in his glorified state, his purpose now is to be the principle of resurrection for the Christian body. This is why we read, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his what? Power. Power. There's an interesting juxtaposition here, a comparison and contrast, something that Montague draws out. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. We always want to look how we might turn something upside down so as to turn it right side up. That is the nature of paradoxical thinking. Elsewhere, Paul shows that the risen life that Christ gives us is not merely a future one, but is already begun now. So, as one regularly nourishes one body with food, so Christ nourishes body, the church, which of course is what? In allusion to the Eucharist. Amen to that. How about verse 15 here? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Here, we are thrown into the highly realistic way Paul understands the Christian's union with Christ. It is not a spirit-to-spirit union only, as some of us might tend to think. It is also a body-to-body union. Even in its present earthly condition, the Christian's body is united to the risen body of Christ. And where do we see this most profoundly? But of course, in the Eucharist. What does Jesus say in John chapter 6? If you do not eat of the flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. I will not be united to you in the way that I've intended to be united to you in the Eucharist. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. The Latin rendering there is consumatum est. So maybe the better translation would be, it is consummated. Well, what do you think about when you hear the word consummation, but two becoming one? My dear friends, in the Eucharist, our Lord enters into a bridal union with our souls. Yes, but he does so. He does so, of course, with his body, with his body. This is what is so radical, so provocative about the Eucharist. It isn't so much that we consume Christ in the Eucharist. Yes, that's part of it, but also that Christ consumes us. This is how radical and provocative the Eucharistic Supper is. I mean, rich, rich stuff. How about this verse? Shall I then take Christ's members and make them the members of a prostitute? That's an interesting question. 
that what belongs to Christ so intimately would be snatched away through an act of violence is unthinkable, is it not? The Greek verb here is translated, shall I take? Shall I take is not the ordinary word for take, but is used more often for taking by force or taking by injustice. You see, my friends, that is precisely what the Christian does who unites himself with a prostitute. Stealing from Christ, as it were, the Christian makes himself a member of the prostitute, her property. And for one who has been freed by Christ through belonging to him, this is an enslavement, a falling under the power of the very thing that Paul excluded in verse 12. Okay, how about verse 16? The fornicator becomes one body with her. For the two, it says, will become one flesh. So, sexual union, whether within marriage or not, involves, once again, the whole person of each partner, right? Leaving an imprint on the soul as well because of the partner's psychosomatic nature. One can never say that in giving the body what it lusts for, the soul remains free and unengaged. My dear friends, you and I both know that is simply not the case. We hear this phrase used today in college campuses, the hookup culture. What is the hookup culture? Well, the hookup culture is basically hooking up for a night, one night, enjoy yourself and move on. And we think it has no effect on us. But I pose to you a question. What would it look like if we just responded to any kind of urge we had? Imagine if every time you walked by a chocolate store, you went into the chocolate store and you bought three chocolate bars and you ate them. If you did that enough, there would be significant consequence, potentially grave consequence. Everyone has a sweet tooth. Why would we think that for a second we have to be disciplined and say no to certain things as it relates to food and not as it relates to our bodies? Okay, we have to be disciplined. We have to say no. And that no would be, well, that one night stand. Today, this is no small matter. Given the currency of casual sex in our society, we have to appreciate what happens when there is a communion of persons. As I noted yesterday, sex is not a merely biological activity. All right, verse 17, but whoever is joined in the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here, the words is joined are the same words used for union with the prostitute, clearly indicating the stark realism with which Paul considers the Christian's union with the Lord. So becoming one with Christ does not deny the bodily union just expressed in the previous lines. Rather, the effect of bodily union with Christ is the opposite of bodily union with the prostitute. It has what we can say a spiritualizing effect. The Holy Spirit, who inhabits the body of the risen Christ, is passed on to the body of the Christian. And we can say, much in the way, maybe, of how electricity runs to the lamp once the lamp is plugged into the socket, huh? And so, all that being said, 
we are left with this charge <laughs> in verse 18. Flee fornication. Flee fornication at all costs. Avoid immorality. Shun immorality. Once again here, the Greek for immorality is uh, pornea, which speaks to sexual immorality or fornication. Now, following Thomas Aquinas here, many spiritual writers have advised in the light of this very verse <laughs> that while other vices call for a tactic of resistance, sexual immorality, fornication, calls for the tactic of flight. So shun it, flee from it, okay? If you want to resist fornication head on, go for it. But you better be vested with God's grace in a profound way, which always starts with a prayer for purity, right? So my advice to you would be flee from it, shun it, okay? When you see what you think to be a beautiful woman, praise God for her beauty and move on, okay? Or if you are a woman and you see a handsome man and you want to praise God for all of his handsomeness, if you will, praise God, move on. Right? Because as we know, if we dance around that, we just might be dancing with the devil, and we don't want to do that. All right. Now, in these series of verses, Paul concludes by placing the whole issue in the context of what? Well, what did we talk about in the beginning? In the context of the Trinity. Being one spirit with Christ means that the Christian shares in Christ's own character as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The very body of each Christian then becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul does not say that the soul is the temple. No, but the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each believer, Paul says, has been purchased. What's going on there? Well, the whole theology of redemption is really contained in that phrase. And here we ought to appreciate the historical context. There was an ancient practice of freeing a slave by a rite in the temple of the gods. He was declared what was known as a servant of Apollo, and thus entered the state of freedom from slavery to his human masters. Much was made of the price paid on this occasion, and the term used for slave was, in the Greek, soma, or body. My dear friends, when we realize that the majority of the population of Corinth were slaves, and that many in the Christian community were either slaves or freed slaves, we can better understand how meaningful would be the allusion to the liberating ransom of redemption by Christ himself. When Paul adds at a price, he is intentionally using understatement. Here as readers of the text, we could fill in the next sentence by the blood of the Son of God. If the body of the Christian is a temple, it is the place where God is worshipped and glorified. So we have that closing line. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The very physical life of the Christian is what? What have we said on numerous occasions? That the very physical life of the Christian is itself a liturgy, is a holocaust. And in this sense should chastity envelop 
each and every one of us, body and soul. Because when it does, it does so with a brilliance that reflects the glory of God. This is why that beatitude of blessed are the pure in spirit for they shall see God is so, so important. Huh? Purity. Kathados is the Greek. That Greek kathados translates the Hebrew word for what? But offering. The Greek kathados has a very rich historical context. It has a direct allusion to the priestly rite of offering. We glorify God in our bodies when we offer to God our bodies as a what? A sacrificial holocaust. This is why we just don't give in to every sexual desire because we lose our sense of what it means to be liturgy, to be a holocaust. And ultimately, as the Beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, to see God. This is the real gem of that Beatitude, by the way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If lust is like mud, its opposite is like clear water or clean air. And that is what we call purity of heart. Purity of heart. To see God this is the greatest reward. Would that not be the greatest joy? The greatest joy. Amen to that. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift of another Wednesday evening, where we continue to work through the inspired Word of God, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, to glean its richness and how we might be a better Christian and Catholic for spending time with your inspired Word of God. Certainly, Heavenly Father, you would have us reflecting, contemplating into the mystery of who we are in our anthropology, that we might be stronger Christians. You gave us the gift of St. John Paul II, who in turn gave us his gift of theology of the body, a series of reflections that were given to us on the heels of the most profound question, what is the meaning of man? And so as we reflect into theology of the body, and in so doing, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, we hope that we might better understand that question, what is the meaning of man? And as such, be better stewards of the gift of life that you have entrusted us with. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.